guest today is Heidi Seaboard, who is a poet and a mom, and has been through the corporate world as well. And uh, I described a little bit about how she got here and her work. So welcome to Things I Didn't Learn in School. Thank you, Paul. It's wonderful to be here. Why don't you share, I think probably uh, poetry fans may well know you, but a lot of our listeners won't. So why don't you describe a little bit just your background, who you are, and what brought you to this point? Well, it's it's been a bit of a twisty road, a long and twisty road. Um, I grew up in Seattle, which is where I live now. Um, mm. But in between, I lived all over the place. So I, I started out in Seattle. Um, and started writing poetry actually when I was a kid and took it seriously in high school to the point where I got invited to a, a seminar that occurred a couple of nights a week out at the university with full of MFA PhD students. And so I was way over my league, wow. but learned a lot. And then I went away to university and eventually sort of lost poetry. I think part of it was I needed to make a living and very quickly I put poetry aside and had a full life doing a lot of other things. So I started out in public relations and actually I started out as an editor for Women's Sports Magazine, which was started by Billie Jean King. And Hmm. so I was a sports writer and sports editor And then I moved into public relations and stayed essentially in PR marketing for most of my career. And it took me all over. I lived in London. I lived in Madrid. I lived in Los Angeles. I lived in Boston, um, had an apartment in New York Mm. and up and down the actually San Francisco and a lot of time in Silicon Valley was in Silicon Valley in the 80s when Silicon Valley was really just getting started so that's that was fun and it was just it was an exciting career that I loved but I didn't write poetry during all of that and on top of it I raised three children who are now adults so it was just this this crazy busy life and along the way I would read poetry and I'd write the random poems just for mostly for special occasions Mm -hmm. um, for friends or family and but they weren't serious I didn't think about them seriously and then I was having a drink with a colleague in New York City and he mentioned that he I don't know what brought this up because it's sort of a random thing to talk to a colleague about, but I think we were talking about the fact that I'm an insomniac. And he said, well, I, what I do for my insomnia is I read poetry, which maybe that's not the best thing, (laughs) but he he said, I, yes, that's it. He said, I read poetry and I keep a volume of poetry and I love poetry. And I said, ah, I used to write poetry. And then I, I went, back to my hotel that night and I felt really sort of sad that Mm. I that I was talking in the past tense that I had let something that had been so important to me at an early age just slip away and become not a part of of my life or how I conceived of myself so I got online and I signed up for uh, a weekend seminar at the Hugo House, which is here in Seattle, and it's a wonderful writing institution. And I went to the class, and after two hours, I was driving home, and I had to pull over 
because there were literally like lines of poetry coming out of my head. Mm. It felt like there was water on a, a seeded garden and suddenly everything was just sprouting. Mm. It was really an exciting moment. And I, I came home and I said to my husband, oh my God, I mean, this is amazing. And he's watching some game on television and I'm just <laughs> writing and I'm writing. I mean, I'm just writing. And then I go back the next day and I'm, I've got poems that I'm bringing, which felt like, you know, like, like, like bringing a four course meal. It just, it just felt so huge and wonderful. And that's it. I mean, I just started writing and then over time, it's about probably year and a half later that I then kind of began to reorder my life so that I could prioritize writing. I've had a number of different people who this thing is really breathing in them on the show. And then for various circumstances, sometimes it just continues, they go straight on. But in many times, this thing that you went through, and I think that, you know, certainly to some degree, I went through that, you know, thinking like, this is wildly impractical. You are going to starve to death if you go to me saying to myself, was there any of that in your thinking or was it just sort of nobody around you was doing it and the environment had changed? And Yeah, well, no, for sure. I, I think there were there were a couple of things. So when I went off to, to Stanford, which had an illustrious writing program at one point with Wallace Stegner and now again has it with the Stegner fellows, but it was sort of between Stegner's, I would say. Uh And so there was a kind of lull in energy around creative writing. I had an advisor who was really not interested in in this young poet who'd shown up, who I think I probably arrived thinking I was pretty good at this stuff because I've been told that by university professors. And suddenly I wasn't on his radar at all. So it was an expensive school. My parents paid for a couple of years. I had to pay for the rest mm. and because there were a lot of kids. And so I, you know, I, I hustled my way through and I then knew I had to make money. So, yeah, I mean, you just sort of, you get practical. The hustle is real. The hustle is real and you get really practical. And mm-hmm. I had gone, I'd gone off to university imagining that I was, going to have, I remember announcing to my parents, I'm never going to make money. I'm going to be a poet. I just want you to know I'm going to live in a cabin in the woods somewhere. And that's my life. And that ended up not being my life at all. <laughs> and, you know, because I had to, I had to hustle and I realized that, that I wasn't going to make it as a poet at that point in my life. Yeah. I just didn't have the resources or the support to do it. Did you go through a, I've had a a number of people have also come from similar backgrounds on the show. One woman um, grew up in the projects uh, in New York and she wanted to be, she ended up as CEO of, co-CEO of a major hedge fund, but she was really interested in literature. And then she got to college and she looked at the list of pay of professions and she was like, accountants make four times what English teachers make. She was like, well, I guess I'll be an accountant. And even though she didn't really like accounting, that was just sort of, that was what was required. So were you making those types of calculations when you were graduating college? And was there any sort of, it seems like later on you have this real, the light bulb goes off, like this is really who I am. 
were you aware that you were burying something at that time? Or was it just, listen, it's college. I got to get some scratch and get going. And that's that. I, I was an English major and I um, was a writer right out of the gate. I was a sports writer. So I, right. I wasn't that far from I was certainly not creative writing but I was a sports writer and then I and then I became a writer for the very first high-tech PR firm and but then I very quickly went into business so by the time I was 24 I'd started my own business and at that point I moved on I, yes. you know, I, I really, I left it and, and I was fu- fulfilled, honestly, I was mm-hmm. completely fulfilled doing everything that I did during those 40 years. And it really wasn't until I sat in my hotel room in New York and went, oh, and then because I think I'd done it, you know, I'd really done this other career and I'd done it with joy and intensity and I lived a full life. Yeah, it's just, it's just strange. It's, I, I felt like the perspective, I don't know exactly how old you are, but I imagine we're not that far off in age. But the perspective, once you've done the corporate thing and once your kids are adults, and if you're still fortunate enough to be relatively energetic and healthy, it seems like it's a, there's this widespread thing I think midlife crisis doesn't quite describe it. It's just sort of a recognition of mortality and you've accomplished these. You've got an education, you've had a career, you've had a family. And then it's a little bit like, okay, what does this next stage actually look like? And it seems to provoke a real soul searching in a number of people. Yeah. I don't know that I, I soul searched at all. Because oh, the answer just presented, you know, the answer just presented itself. Or shift, maybe is a better word. Yeah, a shift for sure. I, but but it, the answer really just presented itself. Um, I, at some point before that, I had thought about what would I do after I retired, and I uh-huh. put it. I I created a little postal, you know, little postal note with you know, here are the things that I want to do at sort of my, my little bucket list. And, and I put write a novel. I didn't put write poetry. I put write a novel. Like, yeah, that's original. It's interesting because I gave it that much thought. And then I sort of tucked that away and I kept working. And then suddenly this presented itself. Like it just was in me. It had been buried someone recently described it as it was waiting for you and it was waiting for Mm. me and it wasn't it wasn't impatient i wasn't frustrated during that time it was waiting and and when the right moment appeared i grabbed it and we've been running together ever since i tried once early on in my 20s to uh, write full-time, and I thought I didn't have the, frankly, the emotional discipline. Now in my 50s doing it, I'm, my wife thought I would go crazy sitting alone in a room, and so far it hasn't happened. I mean, I do these podcasts and talk to people, there's various things to bring you out, but I'm elated doing it. 
And it feels like maybe a part of my brain changed, or I'm not sure what, but the, the, the constant buzz of being scheduled and running into meetings and mentoring people, which was a part of my life for decades, is gone. And it just feels like just something you left behind, like college or something like that. Just moved on. It's so interesting. I had the exact same experience, Paul. And it's having been what I thought was an extrovert. And literally, I used to be on a plane three or four days a week. I was flying someplace, would get off the plane, you know, get picked up by someone in meetings, running around constantly, you know, dinner meetings, then drinks after, you know, just those days that were scheduled and scheduled with people. And I thrived on that. And now I thrive on being alone to the point where, I mean, the pandemic was horrible, but also really productive. And now, and now, you know, there's suddenly demands on, on my time and I'm resentful and I'm like, wait, I, I, what, what, go away, you know, go away. I, 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 you're craving that time, um, which is so, so interesting. I mean, it really is a shift from a life of people to a life with words. And that is a, is a, giant shift and and i agree with your feeling like oh okay that was that and now this is this is my life and i'm very happy with stay with us we'll be right back money is all around us and we think about it more than almost every other aspect of our lives but how can we make more of it and what's our drive for building wealth beyond just the numbers in our bank account Join us on the Make More podcast as our host, Matt Heslin, brings to you a dynamic lineup of experts in the world of investing, business, health, and beyond. Together, they unpack the secrets to not just surviving, but thriving in today's economy. It's about more than just wealth. It's about crafting life experiences, seizing opportunities, and building a legacy. Subscribe now to the Make More with Matt Heslin podcast and join us every week for new expert insights and inspiration. There's something I've noticed too, and I want to check in and see if, see if this resonates with you at all either, which is, you know, in meditation, they talk about the surface waves and then what's down beneath the surface. And what I found is that, you know, I'm, I'm not a poet, I'm writing, I'm writing longer form stuff, but there is this getting down at the depths of things that is, was totally foreign in corporate life. And even in college, I felt like it was a little bit like how quickly could you process stuff and get things out? Like you were given 500 page books and you never had time to read them. So it was like, could you find the most important 150 pages of the 500 and move on? And now there's a little bit going back to, okay, if you're going to write really good stuff, really read and in some cases reread the stuff that other people were trying to do the exact same thing as I'm trying to do now. And you read it with completely different eyes. So on the one hand, yes, it's more isolating. But on the other hand, you do have some sort of company and you more feel like you're in the tradition of these other people who've been trying to tell stories in different forms for ancient times. And you read them completely differently. At least I do. You read them with like a a vastly different perspective at this stage in life and with this sort of mentality than I ever did before. Or maybe you always read them that way. I don't know. No, that's really interesting. Well, what you're saying is you sort of 
you've traded colleagues and real people for 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 the words of people right you know what what others have written which is really interesting I think the hardest adjustment for me and I wonder if you've had this as well when I used to go to work I'd, I'd describe these full days and I you can't write for eight hours no I mean maybe you can't but you can't you know you you can write in an intense way for a few hours and then you have to get up and do something else. And I had to let go of that idea that I was goofing off. Oh, totally. It's it really, do you feel that way too? Absolutely. That you were goofing off. Absolutely. Uh, and no, you're not, I, of course, because yeah. you're sitting, it's sitting there thinking you're going off doing running errands and it's in your head and you're, solving problems with you know this character in my case with a line and a poem but it feels like goofing off well I found not only that I found it's essential like I found that some of the productive work might be going and literally sitting on a bench in a park and just sort of watching people for 30 minutes you might actually get something really meaningful done Describe this book, The Insomniac Slumber Party with Marilyn Monroe. There's the Insomniac piece, and then there's the Marilyn Monroe piece. I read the poems, and, you know, they're quite powerful. So both things are interesting. I ended up going to NYU, which is great because it's their whole top notch. I mean, one of the best creative writing programs in the world. And and were you were you in New York, or were you, or were you doing it in, like, a compressed No, time? so I'm living in Seattle, and NYU, very cleverly, holds their residencies in Paris. Oh, you did that. Pro- I've read about that program. Yeah. Which I think is a, a gift actually for their faculty because they take their entire creative writing faculty into Paris twice a year. And then they're able to lure all these other, it's just a, a, a constellation of star writers that appear. It's magical. And so I was writing around it was Bastille Day, and I was riding around on a bike in Paris, knowing that I had a, a meeting with my very first advisor, uh, Robin Cost Lewis, and somewhat nervous because I was going to propose this idea of writing in persona mm. to her. And I was going to propose that I write in the persona of Marilyn Monroe. So I, and it's hot and, you know, they've got the air shows and it's all kind of crazy. And I show up at the appointed time at the um, Shakespeare and Company and we're meeting outside on a, on a picnic bench. Mm. And I tell her that this is what I'm thinking of doing. And she's just like, that's fantastic. Mm. And she said, but why, why? And I said, well, because I just was fortunate enough to have my first collection picked up for publication. And it's much more, it's called Give a Girl Chaos and it's much more autobiographical. And I just want to get out of my own skin for a while. And I was interested in writing persona. And then the other thing that I've been interested in is is the performance culture that we are living in right now. And also how we sort of celebrate celebrities and particularly women. And we put them up on pedestals and, you know, it's Beyonce or Lady Gaga or whatever, you know, these, these, um, these icons. And in thinking about sort of all of that, about 
sort of what we do with women celebrities, what we do with our own performance culture that is now everybody's performing all the time on yes. social media. Um, I started thinking about who's who's the longest living icon, who's still there, mm-hmm. who's just become nothing more than a, a face. And and so I Marilyn Monroe, who I know nothing about, you know, when I started this, I knew nothing about her, but I knew that she was the one. Um, so I proposed that. And fortunately, Robin was like, go for it. And, but you need to do a lot of research. And she said, I mean, really a lot of research. Um, and so I, I launched into it and started writing and researching at the same time. So going very sort of deep reading biographies and, um, and uh, biographies, autobiographies by Arthur Miller, biographies on Joe DiMaggio, many biographies on Marilyn Monroe, um, going online and searching everything. I mean, I found so much information. Um, It was really interesting. Going on to to the fan sites, um, finding the diaries of of photographers that had written about their photo shoots mm. with her that was, you know, that were being auctioned online. I mean, there's just, there's so much stuff out there. And then also there were a couple boxes of her own journals, poems, and sort of diaries and things like that, letters that were found and put into a book called Fragments. And that became very useful because there was her voice in writing um, and her, you know, her, her, her writings to herself, her writings to others, um, you know, lines of poems. So I really got a sense of, of, of her voice through that. Before I then went, the, so the last thing I did in this two-year process was, was then watching her films and seeing her as a character. Um, so that, you know, all of that was interesting. So I, I kept doing this research over this period of time and writing poems and writing poems. You know, I discovered that we had some, some experiences and aspects of our lives in common. And hmm. I started to kind of lean into that. And then, but also very different. I mean, she had a horrible childhood Mm. and essentially was raised as an orphan sort of passed around and I had a wonderful childhood Mm. and she had a series of miscarriages and I have had three children and and Mm. you know healthy wonderful children so there was that but we also had several marriages and those marriages kind of broke in the same kind of ways, Mm. which was interesting to me, you know, hers were famous people, Mm. Um, but it doesn't really matter, right? Things, when things break, they they break no matter who, who, who you're married to. So that was interesting to sort of understand kind of how things played out and then just how she built her career and the experiences that she had and what she had to do to get ahead and to have that career. And I felt like I had had a lot of those similar experiences. And then fundamentally, 
she was an insomniac. She could not sleep. And I've also suffered from mm. insomnia for most, for all, since I was, I don't know, 13, 14, maybe before, I don't remember, but yeah, all my life. And she got into barbiturates thanks to the mm. studio system to deal with her insomnia and and her insomnia I think came from a different place it came from a lot of anxiety but insomnia comes from wherever it you know it comes from and then it's there and and that that's where I really connected at this sort of visceral level and as I was writing I realized that we had this in common and when I got into my final thesis semester and and I was then pulling all these poems together into some sort of thesis, which I wanted to be my next book. So a full length collection. I, I, I realized that actually it needed to be this, this middle of the night conversation between the speaker and the poems, who's some version of the poet, who's some version of me, with Marilyn, who is my version of Marilyn, who's also Norma Jean, you know, so then you kind of still get that idea of, of the performance, we're all performing, but the two of us, in some form of ourselves, come together in the middle of the night mm. and share our lives and our experiences, and we go through that together, and so there's her kind of the narrative arc of her life, but also my life is woven in there or some version of my life is woven in there and I know it's 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 an unusual book I think that's what makes it interesting yeah it's it's inter it's interesting it's unusual and it's interesting and and for me it was enlightening because I'm I'm always interested in exploring sort of the vulnerabilities and I think that comes from having never been allowed to be vulnerable in my life to always be in charge to have the answers and to be running things and to now writing poetry to be in a place where I can actually not only be vulnerable but explore the vulnerabilities in myself and others in you know in 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 our in our general world where we're all at risk and I think that to me is really the bigger shift than just leaving the corporate world behind and becoming a poet is the ability to 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 shift from being in charge to being open and Mm. um and vulnerable and so that's that's a big chunk of of what goes on in that book and also went on in in my first collection and in the chapbooks that I've written as well I knew nothing about Marilyn Monroe, too. I just looked a little bit on very superficially what's online. But she has an unbelievably tragic life. You know, my first book was about uh, an orphan and what that impact is on a child. And I couldn't help reading her stuff and not thinking about those disruptions and the consequences and the challenges with intimacy and self-regulation and all these things that would come from the chaos that she was living through. And then throw on top of that being in this media maelstorm, maybe now we can recognize a little bit we're in it. But she was sort of the first, one of the very first ingredients in everything, which might have made it that much more, maybe you would know better, disconcerting 
or confusing. It's interesting. She used the media as to gain power mm. in her contract negotiations with Fox. She would like almost time have some some way of getting news coverage in order, you know, and just right before she was going into to a, a contract negotiation. She was very, very clever that way. Mm. And she knew this was one of the few things that she had. And so she used it. Um, she used it with, with great sort of clarity and, and force and knew that her public image was something she could bring to the table in negotiating her contracts. And I think you see that today, right? You see that today with some, with totally. you know, with celebrities. And she was the first one. I, I actually read an academic book as part of my research that talked about, about celebrity and sort of where it came from. And, and in it was, was there was a chapter on, on Marilyn Monroe and how she used her celebrity. But it, it, it goes back, but it was often women who had to figure out how to use, they, they had to expose themselves and they still do. Women still have to expose themselves. And you, you see it, they expose themselves and how they dress on the stage and everything in order to gain mm. power, which is just, um, mm. you know, kind of a, a broken system, but we're still in it today. Talk a little bit, if you sort of mix these two worlds, the poet hat and then a little bit your business world hat, this may be mixing the sacred with the profane, but the market for poetry. In other words, people have been, had lyrics and words for long periods of time. And I guess part of me has wondered whether in a more social media form, and I know some poets actually have succeeded quite a bit in there, where, you know, Twitter is a short form and Instagram is a short, is there a new power to poetry or is the demand for this, if you were to speak in such terms, stable or what's that like? There is a interest in poetry and there's two things driving it. You know, you can, poets and writers track sales and there is an uptick in poetry that happened pre-pandemic, which was driven by what are called the Instagram, the Insta poets. Mm -hmm. Um, and they are literally publishing on Instagram and then pulling them into books and selling them. And there's a, there's a handful and they drive sort of the sales. Then there's a steep drop off to, to the rest of the poets, which is the bulk of, of poets. And yet I think of the Instagram Insta poets is sort of a, you know, they're a gateway drug, right? So Mm -hmm. a lot of um, young women pick up those books, follow them on Instagram, and they're in the bookshelves of the bookstores. So you're going to go in and you might pick up something else as well. Now, is there any money to be made in poetry aside from a very, very few? No, there's, there's no money to be made in it. It's, it's, if you are going to be a poet, you've got to teach or you've got to have something else there. It's very, very difficult to scrap together a career, um, a paint, you know, that pays decently as a poet. And a lot of poets then will write novels because there's more money in novels or in memoirs or something. Um, so that's, 
that's that's the sort of crass market <laughs> of the poetry world. It's it's part of it's part of it's part of life too. Um, any any questions for me? You've been very generous with your time. Thank you for. Yes, yes. I want to know what you're working on right now, Paul. I am working on a story that it's a fiction story is about the world that I was part of. I worked at the biggest hedge fund in the world for many years. At the same time that I was doing that, I was sort of traversing between the U.S., Russia, and China and seeing the inside of these places and I speak the languages. And so I had this kind of this perspective that I just couldn't see put out anywhere. But it's basically about those worlds and about the people in there. It sounds, it sounds great. It sounds like a really compelling story. You know, I'm curious, because you've lived this life, do you feel like it? you've got so much to write about? Yeah. I mean, I think that that's one of the beautiful things about writing when you're older is that I remember being in my 20s, first of all, saying out loud that I wanted to be a writer, frankly, felt pompous. Like we read great writers, but you would never aspire in your 20s to be one. At least I, I wouldn't say it out loud. I'd feel embarrassed to say it. And then I also, second issue was I didn't feel like I had anything meaningful to write about. I probably did, but I, at the time I didn't feel that. And so I, when I graduated college, Brown, I actually moved to Russia. It was the year the Soviet Union collapsed and it was this rare opportunity. Going there thinking I would collect material to become a writer. Um, I did, but I also met my wife there and we had a child there unexpectedly. And all of a sudden I was like my mid-20s with a wife and a kid and absolutely no dough. And a little <laughs> bit like you, I had to make some money. And then that just set in motion everything that everything that came next. And so the idea was still there. And now it's having the time and the courage, frankly, to do it. You know, yesterday I was, there's a scene in the book that um, the main character is on this train in Siberia. And in my 20s, I was on a lot of trains in Siberia. And I had to go back to those times. And, you know, and I read modern stuff too, but I had to go back in those times and resurrect that experience you know, pulling those little elements out. And I've had, this is a long-winded answer to your question. The experience I had with the first book, though, the response to it, and it's so much more powerful than everything I ever did in the financial world. And somebody far away in their insomnia read the story and underlined something, and then they write me an email about it. It's one of the most unbelievable experiences I've ever had in my life. And so I find that very much fuel to keep going. Yeah. Oh, well, I'm really excited about what you're writing. And I think you'll probably end up writing a lot of books because you've got a lot of stories. You've lived a lot of stories. So nice to meet you. Great to meet you. All right, talk to you later. <laughs> Bye. Thank you for listening to today's episode. We're genuinely touched by all the support. If you want to see more of this type of content, sign up to my Substack and become a paid subscriber that helps supports the team. Uh, you could also submit a review to Apple Podcasts, which draws other listeners to this. If you have any questions, you can email me, paul at paulpodolsky.com and follow me on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. Thanks so much. Today's podcast was produced and edited by Dave Manahan.